3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation's true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855am, and it is just gone 7 in the morning. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, Carly. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, both of you. Ah, it is uh, pretty hectic weather out there. I don't know what you what do you call this. I've been calling it a polar vortex, but that doesn't. Is what that did what you call it, Rosie? Like, um, like Wizard of Oz? But, like, uh, <laughs> I think that was Priya. Priya is the one with all the good uh, ways of describing the I weather. Just, yeah, I was just saying, you know, uh, g- good luck to anybody riding out there because I didn't want to be swept away like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> well, not like Dorothy. And, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a complex metaphor. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, hope everybody's staying safe and warm, as warm as possible out there. Um, we have a lot for you today, and we've also got to promote something important that you're going to hear us harping on about all uh, all across this show, but you will have heard across the week, I mean, since the start of June and before, um, if you're a 3CR listener, and that is Radiothon. So this is going to be our first little plug for the day. Radiothon is on! Uh, 3CR needs to raise $250,000 uh, to keep us on air, and we really need you, the listeners, support, because this is community-powered radio. You're a part of our community. Um, and yeah, uh, we would really appreciate it if you can chip in if you can. Um, where can people head to to donate? Um, so the easiest way I think is donating online. So just go to 3cr.org.au um, or you can also send a check or money order to 3CR at the PO Box 1277 Collingwood. And uh, if you call us next week, the 17th of June, during our show, um, you can call on 94198377. You might even uh, hop on air with us for a little bit. Um, and you can also text on 0488809855. That's right. One time a year, you actually get to talk to us while we're doing the show. It's a, it's a oh not a missed opportunity. How are we doing talk back? <laughs> oh, we are doing talk back. It's a talk back show now. <laughs> We are doing talk once a year. We're talk back. And that is the 17th of June from ooh, 7 to 8.30 a.m. All right. Um, so we've got uh, a couple of things lined up for you. Um, do you want to kick us off with what we've got on for today? Yeah, so first up, we're going to hear a speech that Behrouz Bouchani gave as part of Infrastructural Inequalities, Resistant Media and Abolitionist Futures, um, which you heard a speech by Tabitha Lean from the same program last last week on the show, um, and the panel focused on carceral infrastructures and the struggle to abolish them. And Behrouz Bouchani, um, as if he needs much introduction, but is a Kurdish-Iranian writer, journalist, scholar, cultural advocate, filmmaker, and former refugee. And then Julia Dem's going to join us on the line to discuss an open letter from a group of legal experts calling on the Australian government to support a trade law waiver to address global COVID-19 vaccine production. Julia is a senior lecturer at the Latrobe Law School. Um, Her research addresses international and domestic climate change and environmental law and questions of human rights, economic inequality and social justice. 
And then after that, we're joined by Mudit Vyas, who joins us to speak about the experiences of international students in Melbourne and uh, during COVID-19. And Mudit is a graduate researcher at Monash University, and he majors in cultural studies. And Mudit's been challenging some of the changes last year at universities around uh, around online delivery of courses and the continued mass intake of international students, um, obviously, as we've seen, without the provision of much support. Absolutely. And then finally, Dr. Leslie Russell, Associate Professor at the Menzies Centre of Health Policy at the University of Sydney, will join us to speak about the recently announced changes to the Medicare benefits schedule and their impacts on consumers, doctors and insurers with a public health and health equity framing. Yeah, I'm really excited for that one because I really feel like I'm... You know, as much as I am a person who lives here and has access to the Medicare benefits schedule, I'm still not as far across how it all works. So keen for that chat. Um, and now shall we? Um, well, I, w- I would love to promote Diaspora Blues again because I love Diaspora Blues. Um, make sure as well um, when you donate. Sorry, this is a reminder. When you donate, if you donate online at 3cr.org.au, uh, you'll be given an option to promote your, your show that you want the money to go towards. And we've all got our different targets. So um, Thursday breakfast, but also Diaspora Blues. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. So just a reminder um, that if you are donating uh, and you want that donation to be registered under Thursday Breakfast name with the reminder that all of this goes towards raising our $250,000 to keep community-powered radio alive at 3CR, um, what you'll do is you go to our crowd raiser at 3cr.org.au um, and then uh, when you nominate the amount that you'd like to donate and be aware that you can also put in a recurring donation, which we would love, um, the next page will ask you to nominate the show that you want it to go to. And there you just uh, write 3CR Thursday Breakfast. That's the show that you're that you're donating to. All right. Um, Carly, we might just jump into some headlines. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Priya. So news for the 10th of June. The G7 summit in the UK is set to start later this week. The UK is encouraging Australia to increase its emissions reduction target for the 2030s, um, indicating that it's not enough for nations to commit to net zero by 2050. The British High Commissioner, Vicky Treadle, said the UK was asking all countries to lift their interim emissions targets to align with the Paris goal of seeking to limit to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The comments follow Scott Morrison's declaration that Australia will make our path to net zero, but we will not have it be determined by others. Morrison says Australia will continue to be a strong voice for a technology-focused approach and for countries to work together to drive down the cost of low emissions technologies rather than acting uh, combatatively through protectionist measures. 
Such an approach, according to Morrison, will ensure that emissions abatement doesn't come at the cost of growth and jobs. And on Monday this week, the Federal Court Judge Geoffrey Flick ordered the Australian government to pay $350,000 in $350,000 in damages to an Iraqi um, asylum seeker who was found to have been unlawfully held in immigration detention for over two years. This is a rare litigation win for an asylum seeker and it leaves open the prospect of compensation claims for asylum seekers who have been in detention when no effort has been made to remove them. And three-year-old Thanaka was medically evacuated to Perth on Monday evening. She's reportedly been unwell for 10 days with high temperatures, vomiting and diarrhoea as her family called for more medical help. Tharunika, her parents Priya and Nads and her sister Kopika have been in detention on Christmas Island since August 2019. This followed a Department of Home Affairs attempt to deport the family from a detention centre in Melbourne to Sri Lanka. The deportation was interrupted mid-flight after an urgent injunction from the federal court. The plane was forced to land in Darwin and the family was taken to immigration detention on Christmas Island pending the outcome of their court appeal. In April last year, Federal Court Justice Mark Moninsky ruled that Tharunika had not been given procedural fairness when her September 2018 request for permission to apply for a protection visa was rejected. There has been ongoing litigation, which means that the family will not be removed from Australia anytime soon. However, it is not clear whether the family or the government will take the next step and go to the High Court. And that's all the news that I have. But Pri, you wanted to give a bit of a local update? Yeah, definitely. So um, people might be aware of the fact that there was recently a decision handed down around the Collingwood Community Garden. So these are the community garden plots that are at the Collingwood Children's Farm. And there was a decision um, based on, I believe, I guess, a, an assessment of the site uh, to close the gardens and to clear them, um, citing issues of uh, potential snake bites for children and uh, the issue of being potentially impaled on a star picket fence, which, um, you know, that's, there are some questions as to, as to whether that is, um, a very good reason. So, um, yeah, just wanted to amplify the petition from gardeners who have currently lost access to their plots and are trying to regain access. And, um, They've got a petition that's available um, if you look at Digging in Gardeners on Facebook. Um, and you can also read some of the stories of how valuable the community gardens has been to the Collingwood community. You know, people have been gardening there for, for decades. It's been operating since 1979. Um, you know, it's been generations that people have sort of nurtured and cultivated this space. And it's a really important part of the community. So really encourage people to go sign the petition for people to be able to access those plots again um, for more transparency and communication between the committee and gardeners and also to just check out some of those stories um, but yeah that is uh, all we've got for the headlines I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
You're listening to 3CR, Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. And now we're going to head into a new one from Squidgenini. This track is Into My Heart. Tell 
And that track there was Into My Heart by Squid Janini, and that one's off her new EP, Squid. Yeah, uh, definitely recommend that people listen to it. We've played a couple of tracks from that EP, and it is um, incredible. Uh, so we've got a couple more uh, little updates about things happening in the community. One of them is, and I hope people are staying informed and keeping on acting about Palestine, uh, there is a conversation with Tufik Haddad, uh, called The Birth of a New Resistance in Palestine, and it's been organized by Free Palestine Melbourne uh, this Sunday, the 13th of June, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. It's an online conversation, and it's with Dr. Tufik Haddad, who's a Palestinian-American writer, activist, and academic who resides in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, which has become the front line of the struggle against ethnic cleansing by the Israeli occupation. Um, and so he's going to be sharing grassroots insights into the current unified local and global Palestinian uprising. And organizers have recommended that you come prepared with questions as there will be time for discussion for that as well. And there's also uh, been the opening of a public housing um Sorry, Public Housing Vaccination Centre in North Melbourne. Rosie, do you want to um, tell us about that? Yeah, so public housing tenants can receive free vaccinations um, at the bottom of 159 Melrose Street, the tower in North Melbourne. Uh, the clinic is open from Monday to Friday, 10.30am till 4, and they have both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine for walk-ins. Um, so if you're 16 years or over um, and you're a resident of public housing, then you are able to get a free vaccine at that clinic. Awesome. Um, really encourage people to go get vaccinated if they can. Um, yeah, just, you know, trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And hopefully soon, soon the <laughs> vaccine will be available to all of us under 40 as well. Um, and just an encouragement to everybody to go get vaccinated and also to check the Department of Health website for COVID exposure sites and for the changes to restrictions. And just um, if you wanted more info uh, on that um, clinic in public and the public housing tower, um, you can go to www.cohealth.org.au or contact CoHealth for more information about that. Fantastic. Thanks, Rosie. And uh, now we're going to go to uh, Biru's Bichani's speech at Infrastructural Inequalities, Resistant Media and Abolitionist Futures. And uh, this was broadcast online on the 14th of May. And this panel focused on carceral infrastructures and the struggle to abolish them. And Infrastructural Inequalities is a journal and public program that investigates how infrastructural systems distribute resources, capacities, and harms in differentiated and unjust ways. And of course, Beruz Bouchani is a Kurdish-Iranian writer, journalist, scholar, cultural advocate, filmmaker, and former refugee. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. <clears throat> I'm talking with you from uh, <clears throat> in the indigenous land of Maori, Atawra. I let me talk about my experience as a uh, refugee, as a, someone who came to Australia. Uh, on I came on 2013. So they banished me when I arrived in Australia. They banished me to <clears throat> Manus Island. So we were more than 1,000 people. So. Uh, so I was in that uh, indefinite detention for uh, more than six years. And uh, so just I wanted to mention something about the, that prison system. Uh, while I was in Manus Island, I was uh, actually witness that how they were building uh, prisons. Uh, 
So, and that time that I was in uh, Manus Thailand, I was witness that how our prison uh, became bigger and bigger. So at the beginning, it was just three prison camps, three separated prison camps, and then they built another one. So we were watching them, that how they were um, building that uh, prison. And after a while, they built uh, another prison out of that prison and with the dormitory for many guards and for the people who were working with the security companies. So that became bigger and bigger. And after four years, they uh, built another prison camp, another three prison camps in other side of the island. So after four years, they transferred us to those prison camps. And in the end, they opened the gates and the island became a prison for us. So that was uh, my experience with the Australian actually system and mentality and the uh, appetite to build and develop these prison camps. And uh, the interesting thing is that how they actually damage the environment. So if you look at the uh, satellite pictures from Manus Island uh, from 10 years ago and compare it with now, you see that how they destroyed many, uh, actually the tropical jungles. And so that they really damaged the environment very, and, but no one talk about that. And just people just talk about something else and they, people don't see this side of, uh, this system that how this system always has an appetite, develop it and expand this uh, prison culture. And uh, so, but the interesting thing that I think the key point, the key concept in this context, I mean, in the detention is they keep people in indefinite detention. So time is very important here. They are actually torturing people through time. And we had this question for many years and it was our, one of the, our main questions that how long we stay here? How long we should stay in this prison, this prison camp? And they never answered that because they needed, they needed to torture us, and uh, even the, on 2014, that this question actually ended up in a riot because we had this question from them. We did a protest, a, a peaceful protest for about two weeks, and that was our main question: that how long we stay here, how long you are going to keep us here. And after that, they invited us to a meeting and they said, we don't know. And even Scott Morrison, that time he was an immigration minister. He visited Manus Island and we asked him that question again. He said, I don't know. So 
So, I mean, they need that to torture people. And uh, that is really very difficult. And that you, every day, you expect and you think and you imagine freedom. You expect that you, they are going to uh, stop this policy. They are going to release you from the detention. And that actually, for me, it took more than six years. And I know that many of people, they keep them for eight years, nine years. And they, the court system actually is completely failed here. You know, that thing that you mentioned that about the, our problem is with the structure, with the system, not with individual, because we have witnessed since 2013, four prime ministers in Australia. And now the home affairs minister changed. So someone else took off the office. But I mean, uh, our problem is with, with the structure. That really, they uh, by changing people or individual, still the system exists there, and they develop it. And now that most of the refugees from Manusan and Nauru were transferred to Australia to America, and some of them other countries, and some of them in Australia, they the the system still exists. And they actually put the people who they say they are New Zealander in the detention. And I mean, and also they take people from the refugees who already were in the community. So I mean, the system always chased them in the community. So if you do a, a you know, every day you should expect that someone come, the guards come, immigration come and take you and put you in uh, that independent detention again. So I mean that even when you are free, you are living in the community, you always feel the system. And I think that is the heart of this system, that they don't say how long you should stay in that prison camp. So it's really uh, that created a huge problem for, I mean, mental problem and physical problem for many people. And so in Manusan and Nauru, 13 people were killed by this system. And I know that those refugees who already released, they were transferred to America. Still, they are uh, suffering, many of them, because they are carrying something from the past, from that indefinite detention. So that was, was something that I had to uh, mention. And another thing I wanted to talk about the, uh, this policy towards the refugees that they call it the, the border uh, protection. So border is another key uh, word here. So I want to talk about my, uh, mention about my uh, background as a court. Uh, that we Kurdish people we live in the borders because they divided uh, the uh, Kurdistan into four countries. So actually they force us. So all of the Kurdish people they live in the border. 
I was born in the border and I have a, a really, so our people have a different understanding and imagination of border. So border actually is a place that the Kurdish people rely on the border because of, uh, the, I mean, for economy, they trade, they have a black trade, but actually they are uh, killing people there. So last year, more than 300 Kurdish uh, people who were carrying something, like some of them just carry a uh, TV, for example, to just take it from other side of the border and smuggle it and sell it in other side. So that they, they call them kulbar. So these kulbars actually are now is a very known and huge problem in uh, that area, that region. So that is something actually that uh that courts really um, you know always deal with border you know for people for example in australia and other countries they really don't feel and see the border in a way that kurdish people see it and feel it and also that border actually is uh, they during the war that, that there was a huge war for eight years in that border. And uh, they put uh, like a m- many m- mines. So this mine, actually, any time that you pass the border or you get close to the border, you should expect that you die or, you know, and now we have lots of people with disability. So, I mean, I take this uh, experience with border into the refugee uh, world, that how refugees actually understand and imagine border. Because when you pass a border, you actually you become a refugee. So here we have different refugee experience with border, and that is relate to the borders. Some refugees cannot pass the border, so they call them displaced people, so they become displaced in their own country. Some people pass one border, for example, between Afghanistan and Iran, because they don't have this power to do that. Some people go to Europe, so I, think, I mean, and some people get in the boat and go to Australia. So, I mean, if we compare the refugee ex- experience with border with other citizens, I mean European citizens or Western citizens, there is a different imagination and understanding for uh, people who in Western countries that they really, they are able to fly everywhere and anytime they want. So that was uh, something that I had to mention. Yeah, thank you. And just then you heard a speech by Beirouz Bouchani, um, which featured as part of a program, Infrastructural Inequalities, Resistant Media and Abolitionist Futures. It was broadcast on the 14th of May. The panel focused on carceral infrastructures and the struggle to abolish them. Um, and Infrastructural Inequalities is a journal and public program that investigates how infrastructural systems are 
distribute resources, c- capacities and harms in different differentiated and unjust ways. Um, and Beirut is a Kurdish Iranian writer, journalist, scholar, cultural advocate, filmmaker and former refugee. And now we're going to head to a track. Um, so this one is by Siba and it features electric fields. Bit of a fun one this morning. This is called Must Be Love.
gather round people and I'll tell you a story. 200 years of history that's falsified. British invaders that we remember as heroes. Are you ready to tell the other side? We start our story in 1493 with a piece of paper called the Doctrine of Discovery invoked by Pope Alexander VI. Without this good Christian, our story don't exist. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Captain James Cook, he boarded a fleet And he was armed with the doctrine of discovery The same tactics were used by Columbus It's how today Australia claims terra nullius Cause on that paper, the Pope did write That you're only human if you've been saved by Christ And if there are no Christians in sight, the land you stumble on becomes your God-given right. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Is that your Lord? Because that's invasion. That's the destruction of 500 nations The genocide of entire populations Which planted the seeds for the stolen generation And grew into my people's mass incarceration Now we pass trauma through many generations The Lord can't discover what already existed For 200 years my people have resisted From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow The wars continued since Captain James Cook And this side of history you don't write in your books You don't want the truth and you don't want to listen but how can you stomach Australia's contradiction? Cause we went to war in 1945 We were allies against a terrible genocide And I know it's uncomfortable But the irony I see is that you fall for them But you don't fight for me From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow We should move on, move on to what? I still remember, have you forgot? That Vincent Langari knew others were rising. Gurindji inspired us to keep on fighting. So call it Australia, go on call it what you like. I just call it how I see it, and I see genocide. Now that you hear me, can you understand? There will never be justice on our stolen land. From 
little things, big things grow from little things, big things grow. This is the story of so-called Australia, but this is the story of so much more. How power and privilege cannot move my people. We know where we stand. We stand in our law. From little things, big things grow. 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 And that track there was Little Things by Ziggy Ramo and obviously featuring Paul Kelly because that was Ziggy Ramo's rendition of Little Things, Big Things Grow. And just before that track, we heard Must Be Love by Seba featuring Electric Fields. As always, great tunes from Carly. <laughs> um, uh, so this morning we've got Julia Dem on the line. Um, Julia is joining us to discuss an open letter from a group of legal experts that are calling on the Australian government to support a trade law waiver to address uh, the production of COVID-19 vaccines globally. Julia Dem is a senior lecturer at the Latrobe Law School. Her research addresses international and domestic climate change and environmental law and questions of human rights, economic inequality and social justice. Over 150 Australian lawyers and legal scholars have called on the Australian government to publicly support a proposed change of international law rules to allow for a temporary waiver of intellectual property rights over vaccines and medical tools necessary to prevent, contain and treat COVID-19 ahead of a key World Trade Organisation meeting on June 8 to 9. So welcome, Julia. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you first off um, just start by speaking a little bit about this um, open letter? Sure. So the open letter is signed by, as you said, 150, over 150 different lawyers and legal scholars. And it was sent to the Australian government on Monday alongside petitions that are signed by over 50,000 concerned um, Australians. And basically the open letter puts forward a number of arguments why this waiver to the TRIPS agreement, the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, is an urgent, necessary, proportionate and legal measure to facilitate the rapid global vaccination and global vaccine equity. Um, basically, we're saying that, you know, we're in exceptional circumstances at the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's critically urgent that we vaccinate the global population of the world as quickly as possible. The longer it takes for this to happen, the more vaccine inequality we see globally, the more likely it is that we're going to see more variants of this virus that are um, more
more infectious and potentially more vaccine-resistant develop. And that's why we really need to get past this vaccine nationalism that we've been seeing and have a much more global approach to vaccinating the world. And at the moment, these intellectual property um, rights regimes that are protected by international trade agreements are, preventing, are a real barrier to the scale-up of vaccine production and the production of other medical tools that are necessary to fight this pandemic. And that's why this proposal was initially put forward for a waiver of the TRIPS agreement at the WTO by India and South Africa in October um, 2020. It's um, been supported and sponsored by um, been supported by over 100 countries, co-sponsored by over 60 countries at the WTO. Thanks, um, Julia. And we're saying it's urgently necessary to um, get some global agreement on this. Yeah, I mean, it's so important. I just wanted, was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the disparities in access to COVID-19 vaccination, because I know that, um, yeah, so far, as far as I understand, about 87% of vaccines have gone to wealthy nations. Um, sometimes people uh, refer to this as vaccine apartheid or um, vaccine inequality. Could you just talk a bit about that current state of vaccination across the globe? Sure. It's, yeah, like you said, the figures are really shocking that we're seeing. So... Some recent figures reported that only 1.39% of the total population of Africa, only 10 point, approximately 10% of the population of India have received at least one vaccine dose. Um, and some other data suggests that only 0.3% of the vaccines that have been administered globally have been in the 29 poorest countries where 9% of the global population lives. So... Um, even though it's predicted by the end of this year, despite, you know, our rollout being incredibly slow in Australia, but that, you know, 90% of those living in, um, you know, wealthy countries will have um, received their vac- um, first shot of the vaccine, but that 90% of those living in the six, seven low-income countries um, would not yet have obtained access to their um, to COVID-19 vaccines by the end of this year. Thank you. And I was also just wondering, um, as a bit of an explainer, I don't know about um, listeners' knowledge of international law, but mine's not great. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about what the TRIPS agreement is and what a wave, how a waiver would work to increase vaccine production. Sure, sure. So the TRIPS agreement is the um, agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. And it was part of the suite of agreements that countries signed up to when the World Trade Organisation was established in 1994. And basically what the TRIPS agreement does is it provides 20-year protection for a number of different types of intellectual property protection, so patents, but also trade secrets and other types of intellectual property rights. And they've been long-standing, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, would remember campaigns around the problems that the TRIPS agreement poses to public health. Um, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, there's a lot of focus, particularly on access to HIV and medication and the way that the TRIPS agreement was prevent, um, being a real barrier to the scale-up of production of generic versions of these life-saving medicines um, for use in the developing world. Um, I think it's important to recognise, too, that in because of all these controversies around um, the impact of the TRIPS agreement on public health. In 2001, the Doha Declaration was signed on TRIPS, on TRIPS and public health by members of the WTO, and that affirmed that TRIPS can and should be interpreted 
and implement it in a manner supportive of WTO members' rights to protect public health and, in particular, to promote access to medicines for all. So we highlight this in our letter. We say that these protections provided under trade law are not absolute, that trade law does already provide a number of flexibilities, and this includes voluntary licensing and compulsory licensing to address these sort of public health emergencies. However, the existing flexibilities in trade law, um, particularly compulsory licensing as well as voluntary licensing arrangements, are designed more to address localised epidemics or supply issues adequate for the really exceptional circumstances of this unprecedented global pandemic that we're currently finding ourselves in. And that's why um, is countries like WTO and so many civil society groups and lawyers um, and legal scholars is arguing that we need to have a waiver. And so basically what the waiver would do would um, sort of say that a number of sections of the TRIPS agreement would not be implemented or enforced for a certain period of time whilst the pandemic is in place. So it's a temporary measure. And what it would allow is it would allow countries to um, scale up production of vaccines um, in other places where they're currently being prevented from doing so because of these intellectual property protections. Mm. And um, Julia, your letter states that the proposed waiver is now supported by over 118 of the 164 World Trade Organisation member states. So why do you think that the Australian government has chosen not to support the waiver? Um, Do you think that this is potentially linked to protecting profits of big pharmaceutical companies? What are your thoughts? I can't speak exactly about why the Australian government's not. So the Australian government has been a bit more ambivalent about this, what they say, particularly since um, early May when the Biden administration came out to support the waiver. That was such a significant step because the US has traditionally taken a very conservative position, very protective of intellectual property rights. They've obviously got a very strong pharmaceutical lobby that's had a very strong influence on their policies for a very long time. So the fact that the Biden administration came out in May supporting that, the fact that New Zealand has come out also supporting the waiver, but I think really felt that there's now global optimism that this could be possible. Um, Since then, the Australian government has sort of said, look, we welcome what the Biden administration is doing, we welcome these discussions, but they've been very ambivalent and have not yet affirmed support for this position. The other key blocker of a waiver um, globally is the European Union. And again, it can see the influence of the pharmaceutical um, industry in lobbying the EU on this position, even though we are now starting to see split within the EU, some countries um, supporting Italy, Portugal, Poland, um, and Ireland, sort of supporting um, the waiver proposal. Yeah, the Australian government, a lot of their talking points are still sort of talking points from the pharmaceutical um, industry, saying things like a waiver is um, not adequate, not enough to address this, which no one is saying that it would be. We're just saying it's a really important first step to address some of these problems about vaccine production and global vaccine inequity. And the Australian government keeps focusing on the fact that they're donating vaccines to other countries in the region which, again, is a really welcome move. Obviously, it's important that we do um, donate vaccines to other countries in our region, but, again, it's not enough. The problem is not just distribution but also production. We really need to ramp up production of vaccines globally. This is an urgent 
urgent issue. You know, we've got 3.5 million people have already died of COVID around the world. The longer it takes for the whole world to get vaccinated, the more dangerous um, this virus becomes. Yeah, absolutely. And your, so your letter went to the Australian government on Monday. On Tuesday and Wednesday, there was actually a meeting of the World Trade Organisation, um, I believe, where they were discussing the TRIPS waiver. Do you have any updates on what happened during that meeting? It's obviously very recent in the last couple of days. Yeah, I was trying to get my head around some of the changes overnight just before talking to you this morning. And so from what I've been able to understand at the meeting of the TRIPS Council at WTO last night, agreed to proceed with what they call text-based negotiations. So the proposal is moving forward, but in quite the sort of slow way that things often operate in these international trade and legal spaces. And what's concerning is that the EU has put forward a counter-proposal to the proposal from um, India and South Africa for the waiver. The EU's um, communication is really focused on the existing flexibilities under the TRIPS agreement, such as compulsory licensing, and like I said, these mechanisms are not enough. Compulsory licensing operates on, allows countries in these sort of exceptional circumstances to issue compulsory licenses. But um, something like a um, COVID vaccine is an incredibly complicated piece of technology um, and often relies on, you know, over 100 different ingredients that are sourced from multiple different countries across the supply chain. And in order to issue compulsory licenses, countries would need to issue one for each component, um, each ingredient for each country that that would come from. So you can imagine that's an incredibly complex um, process. Countries would still be subject to potential legal challenges if they chose to do that. So the um, proposal that the EU's put forward, um, a lot of groups in civil society have really just seen it as a diversion to delay discussions. We really need to be moving forward with a real solution, and that's why this waiver proposal is so urgent and necessary. Um, and also, Julia, I mean, Melbourne is just about to come out of the circuit breaker lockdown, um, hopefully on Friday. Um, things are going to ease a bit. Um, and you've mentioned this before, but the longer that it takes to vaccinate the world, the more likely it is that new variants will develop that could potentially render current vaccines ineffective. Um, yeah, what are the potential realities if, you know, the Australian government doesn't agree to this TRIPS waiver? Well, we're already seeing now, like a lot of the concern during the current lockdown in Victoria was about the emergence of these new Delta and Kappa strains um, in the community and the fact that they are more infectious. And these are variants that have developed because the virus was allowed to go unchecked in other parts of the world, um, particularly, you know, the huge devastating spikes of cases that we saw in both the UK and in India. Um, and so, again, you know, these, this is a real concern, and that's why we've had, you know, the head of the WTO, I mean, World Health Organisation, sort of talk about vaccine nationalism is not just morally indefensible, indefensible but it's epidemiologically self-defeating and clinically counterproductive because we do really need to focus on, you know, Literally, it's in our self-interest to make sure that the whole world is vaccinated because the pandemic makes no distinctions. No one is safe until we're all safe globally. Um, you know, global solidarity is both a moral imperative, but is actually, you know, the only thing that is going to work in this instance as well. Mm. And organisations including Amnesty International Australia, GetUp, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association and others are calling on the government to support the waiver as well as obviously your open letter. Uh, the IMF, the World 
Bank Group, the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization have called for a global U.S. 50,000, uh, sorry, 50 billion dollar roadmap to end the pandemic. Um, these aren't exactly radical organizations we're talking about. Why is the Australian government um, being so slow to respond to this? And how can uh, listeners who are interested in this issue and following it up support um, your calls? Yeah, so again, I really hope that the Australian government will move. Now that there is such a push from so many organizations in Australia and around the world to really say this is so urgent and necessary, um, so, yeah, I'd encourage listeners to read more about um, about this issue and to get in touch with your representatives saying we need Australia to take a really clear, unequivocal position in support of this waiver and to act in a way in the negotiations that really speed up the process. You know, the longer, you know, the longer we have these sort of slow negotiations that just lead to more and more delay as the pandemic is spreading as more lives are being lost, as more variants are potentially developing. So I'd really encourage um, all listeners to have a look. There's great material on, um, you know, Human Rights Watch international pages, on the pages of AFTINET, Australian Fair Trade Investment Network, on the pages of the other organisations that you mentioned. Um, and to, you know, to do get in touch with your representatives saying Australia needs to take a clear position to support this critically important global initiative and be constructive in these negotiations. Thank you so much, Julia, for both um, explaining all of the kind of international law parts of this, but also um, just, yeah, clearly outlining that this is like a time-sensitive, obviously a time-sensitive issue, and this needs to happen um, quickly. It's not something that can just be negotiated over a long period of time. That's a really important point. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So that was Julia Dem um, joining us to discuss an open letter from a group of legal experts that was calling on the Australian government to support a trade law waiver to, to address global um, COVID vaccine production. Julia Dem is a senior lecturer at the La Trobe Law School and her research addresses international and domestic climate change and environmental law and questions of human rights, economic inequality and social justice. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we just got a bit of breaking news. So um, the sponsor of the Keystone XL crude oil pipeline has said that it is finally pulling the plug on the uh, on the product. Uh, sorry, on the project after Canadian officials have finally failed to persuade President Joe Biden to refer his cancellation of the permit um, on the day that he took office. So he'd made that as an election campaign. He cancelled the permit. Um, Calgary-based TC Energy have been campaigning to have that permit overturned. Um, but we can report, um, based on this breaking news from the states, that uh, the KXL pipeline has now officially been cancelled and the, that um, that Calgary-based company, uh, TC Energy, are working with government agencies to ensure a safe termination and exit from the project. And that pipeline was set to go through the heart of the Osheti Shakoan territory and was the final section of a vast pipeline network that transports tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada to ports on the U.S. Gulf Coast. And uh, most of this had already been built and Donald Trump uh, during his term sanctioned uh, the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. Um, so this is a great victory. Um, And, yeah, just want to congratulate all um, Indigenous water defenders, all First Nations that have been fighting against this for so, so long. um, And we stand with you. Um, Yeah. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our radiothon. 
will be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever and we need your support to power community radio. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8 by 5 a.m. And now we're going to go to an interview with Mudit Vias, who joins us to speak about the experiences of international students in Melbourne uh, during COVID-19. And Mudit is a graduate researcher at Monash, majoring in cultural industries, and has been challenging some of the changes last year at universities around online delivery of courses and the continued mass intake of international students. So Mudit, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so, yeah, did you guys want to jump into to some questions? Yeah, Muda, I was just wondering if you could please just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about some of the advocacy work you've been doing recently. So, I'm from India, and I've been in Melbourne for about two and a half years now. And I wouldn't call it advocacy work. It's more about understanding why the community finds it so hard to organize around international student issues, why we are always involved in symptomatic relief around student issues, international student issues, and we don't fix structural problems. Um, Yeah, that's about it. Uh, The problems I've been facing is mostly around why I can't get anyone to understand that the university is not necessarily uh, doing the right thing by forcing everyone to study online, A, and B, uh, the financial issues that all of us have been facing, especially being shut out of Job Seeker and Job Keeper. Mm. 
are not necessarily an accident or the right thing to do but by but but have been implemented by design yeah absolutely and um you know covid-19 has exacerbated um systemic issues in in many areas for example um you know, issues affecting people with disability, issues affecting age care. So this is, you know, a lot of systemic issues that we've already seen that were underlying that are getting worse. And it seems this, it seems like the same thing with the, the way that the international uh, student intake has been sort of managed by universities in Australia. Um, so what would you say are some of the, uh, the major systemic issues that COVID-19 has exacerbated for international students um, studying in Australia? Uh, so the biggest thing is that we have courses within universities across Australia that have 95, 90 to 95% plus enrollment of international students. What that does is it makes uh, any, if there is any trouble uh, or there are any issues that international students are facing, those issues become about what the students can get out of the university in terms of welfare. They never talk about what the university can do for the students. That would never happen if we had a decent enough domestic student cohort within those courses as well, which is why I've been talking about, and it gets mistaken for um, a reduced intake of, a call for a reduced intake of international students. It is not. What I've been talking about is um, limiting the number of international students to 50% in all courses, or at least increasing domestic student enrollment in all courses to 50% minimum. Uh, and yeah, the second problem I've been, uh, structural problem I've been talking about is online education, which online delivery of education, which has not necessarily been inclusive of disabled people, especially people with neurodivergence and cognitive disabilities. It has been a big, big issue. A lot of us had to take uh, intermissions and it was expected that we take intermission because we are considered not normal. And so, yeah, that hasn't been talked about. There are no inquiries that have been uh, instituted to figure out how we've been affected. So, yeah, these these are primarily the two big issues. Mm, thank you. Yeah, um, as, you know, uh, both a teacher and a student who's worked online, it is really, it's just like... Rel- Basically, the systems relied on teachers or specific people to deal with those, um, you know, try and remedy those issues. But that's like completely not an answer to a structural problem, as you say. Yeah. Um, I'm also just interested, have you had any luck um, with talking to Monash University or any other students? Do you know, have they had any luck with pushing back on some of these policies that have been really affecting international students? So, uh, I mean... It should be the responsibility of student bodies and student associations. I think the biggest coup that universities have perpetrated on student associations is that they have largely converted these bodies into event organizing, mm. uh, uh, event organizing cohorts. And yeah, whenever you reach out to someone in these associations, there's always something going on, but it is always something that is exclusive, limited, and always related to, like, they're doing some concert, they're giving some free giveaways, but it is never about considering 
the thing that not everyone is inherently equal in the student body. Mm. Not everyone's paying the same fees. Not everyone has the same accessibility. Not everyone has the same learning aptitude. It's just it has been impossible to make our student leaders understand that we are not at the same level. We're not. We're not asking for equality. We're asking for justice. It has been so hard for the last one and a half years. And then I've looked into it and I've understood that a lot of this has to do with the whole skilled migration system that exists here. And I know I'm making a big leap here, but it is a big problem, um, especially because we put like we when we ask this question, we put the whole uh, student recruitment process under scrutiny, and mm. I feel it is done for good. Because what Australia is doing is it is asking, I mean, it is marketing to more settlers, more skilled migrants, quote unquote, still skilled migrants, um, where it is not playing a progressive role in global geopolitics. It is not platforming for refugees and asylum seekers and people who need to study abroad. It is getting more people who are motivated by self-interest, and that is not good uh, for social justice at all. I'm, I don't know if I'm making sense or not, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, you're absolutely making sense. I mean, you kind of touched on it before, how there's just actually universities are so reliant on the international student intake um, and, yeah, how you're pushing for increases in domestic student cohorts as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think... would it? I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more... Your, yeah, you're making some actually really important points, like connecting these things to um, a broader kind of um, migration system in Australia. I was also wondering if you could speak a bit more about the welfare services for international students at the moment. I know there's been an absolute lack of um, financial support for international students, and that coupled with the fact that international students are paying um, exorbitant prices for, the, for their degrees. Um, yeah, whether you could just speak a little bit about... Um, about the challenges um, like for international students regarding um, the lack of financial support from the government and, yeah, maybe how this works into the structural, um, the more structural view, view you're taking. So it's not like there was an absolute lack of government support. Um, there was an absolute lack of federal government support. We did have uh, the Melbourne City grant of a one-time payment. I think it was $1,100. I'm not sure. Um, we also had universities set aside some amount of money which were also like a one-time payment to students. But what universities and the federal government were the first to say was that when you came here to study, you you gave us a financial guarantee that your tuition is going to be covered using whatever means you instituted to get it covered like you might have taken a loan your parents might have guaranteed it so essentially there is no ongoing support that exists so a lot of students that have faced that have either come here with a family or have faced problems such as loss of casual work have realized that it is their parents or their guardians that have had to that have had to help them from abroad or they've had to leave. And the basic lack of understanding that universities have shown is that when someone comes here and lives here for one and a half, two years, 
they become a part of the community mm. they they make an investment in living here and to then uproot themselves and go back again just because the prime minister said so is is beyond comprehension how mm. can you just you you've been here for 2 years you've called this place home so then go back all over again and then go back and look for work in a country that is probably also being ravaged by covid is this mm-hmm. insane like that kind of compassion to understand that the pandemic is not just here but it's happening globally is also important and that has been completely lacking yeah in terms of financial help especially to make help students stay maybe a little longer yeah yeah definitely and i mean i think drawing that uh that link that you drew before the idea of desirable migrants versus undesirable arrivals and the idea that australia continues to offshore its problems and try and uh, move things elsewhere you know we see that resonating in the border closures as well um but with it thank you so much for taking the time to join us and take us through some of these issues and um yeah we really appreciate your voice on this thank you so much for having me All right, thank you. So that was Mudit Vyas who joined us to speak about the experiences of international students in Melbourne during COVID-19 and Mudit's a graduate researcher at Monash majoring in cultural industries. Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Lukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental ambient and electronic music Yalla habaibna Sunatrin Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is just past 8:16 in the morning. And now we're joined by Dr. Leslie Russell, who's an associate professor at the Menzies Center for Health Policy at the University of Sydney, who's joining us to speak about the recently announced changes to the Medicare benefits schedule from a public health and health equity framing. So, um Dr. Leslie Russell, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Good morning everybody. <laughs> Good morning indeed. Um so could you please give us a bit of background into the Medi- Medicare benefits schedule itself and around the review that's led to these recently announced changes? Yes, because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. The medical benefit schedule has a series of items. It actually has something of the order of 5700 items which is what the doctor bills and therefore governs what they are paid and what you pay every time you go to a doctor whether it's for something as simple as seeing a gp or whether it's something quite complicated like a surgery that you have done in the private sector and uh, about 
seven years ago, the government decided that it was time to update and review these items. Obviously, things get added, nothing much gets taken off. The sorts of techniques and technologies that go into quite complicated surgeries like hip and knee replacements have changed dramatically over the last couple of decades. So this work is not being done by the government. It's being done by a whole series of groups of experts, primarily involving the doctors who are the experts in this area. Um, A number of these recommendations came out last October, Mm. have been publicly available since then, and now they're being implemented. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it makes sense to update, uh, to, to, to review these things you know, to, every once in a while to see what's obsolete, to see what's changing. Um, but these are now over 850 changes to the schedule that come into effect from the 1st of July. So it's less, less than a month away. And um, concerns have been raised by consumer advocates, doctors and health insurers um, about, you know, the, the time frame and also about some other issues. So could you take us through some of these concerns? Yes, look, I think the real issue is that the government has done a very poor job of communicating with everybody involved, the doctors, the private health insurers, and of course the community in general, about what's going to happen and what the consequences will be. And and people, to be honest, I think a lot of people don't trust this government on Medicare, and so people are, are rightly suspicious. The um, private health insurance funds and the doctors themselves have pointed out that the time frame involved in making new decisions and new arrangements around the better part of 900 different items um, is probably too short. And so by July 1, no one will really know what the situation is. And the consequence of that is likely that patients will pay more out of pocket. Yeah, and I think that's what's really been sort of emphasized in, in the early reporting around these changes is that people risk paying, uh, paying more out of pocket, their gap fees, uh, being larger because, uh, there's so little time to, to get, uh, for, for GPs, but also insurers to get their head around, uh, these concerns. Um, so would you be able to contextualize some of the, those concerns within broader issues around health equity in Australia? So, you know, how might these, uh, differentially impact First Nations people, older people, people with disability who, uh, already, you know, are facing compromised access to healthcare? Um, yes, I can do that. I think Firstly, it's important to point out that most of the items we're talking about are surgical items and and they only really apply when people have surgery in the private sector because if you have it done in a public hospital, basically you don't pay anything. And as it currently stands, um, a lot of those surgical items have out-of-pocket costs associated with them, even if you have private health insurance. And that makes them out of um, contention for a lot of people who can't afford private health insurance or don't have access to private um, facilities. So that means people in poverty, people who live in rural and remote areas are already disadvantaged. And whilst there's no evidence, at least at this point in time, that the situation is made worse. 
it certainly isn't going to be made better. And and so the debate that we've had over the better part of a decade now about how out-of-pocket costs really undermine the universality of our healthcare system is contributing to this nervousness and worry um, and anxiousness that, that that's around these new items. Yeah, definitely. And that combined with a, with a lack of effective communication and timely communication um, with the public, I think, is, is very concerning, obviously. I, I yeah. think it's, yes, I think it's very important to point out that there is... N- that the process whereby these changes have been recommended has been quite scrupulous and, and long and involved and very consultative. But at, but at the end, you're asking doctors to change their habits and the way they bill in mm. ways that, that have dollar signs attached and people are always reluctant to make change. Mm-hmm. And whilst these changes should all ultimately be budget neutral, we're not, we don't know. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to figure it out at this point in time. And as I said, I think that has led people to, to scare campaigns that, that may or may not be justified about how much more these services will cost people. And in many cases, these are operations with hip replacements, knee replacements that have a real impact on people's quality of life. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's really, um, we really appreciate having you on to talk about this to to sort of cut through some of of the sensational, I guess, reporting that we've seen when really the fact is it's it's quite hard to know how this is going to work because of the short time frame. Um, and um, finally, concerns have also been uh, raised about whether this amounts to another government cost-cutting procedure. And I was wondering if you could address this and maybe, you know, draw any connections between things like cuts to the COVID job seeker supplement and other cuts that we've seen. Again, we don't know. I did go back and look through the budget papers and there it's in, the way the budget numbers are presented, it's in a form that in, does not enable you to sort out exactly what's going on. So there is a very real possibility that um, that whilst some new procedures with new costs have been added to the medical benefit schedule, uh, the uh, reimbursement rate that doctors receive um, might may well have been slashed for other procedures and and unless doctors modify their billing processes, that will mean out-of-pocket costs. So again, I'm afraid I have to say to you in answer to that question, we don't know um, and we can't... T- I, people like me who do this sort of work can't tell from the budget papers and and again, that's a message to the government that says... You just need to be better about explaining to all of the stakeholders what's going on and why and how. Absolutely. And I actually, you know, I think we don't know is a perfect um, and 
completely appropriate response to this to actually, you know, say that out loud um, in, in the media to say that, you know, time is required, better communication about these changes is required rather than, you know, jumping to speculating about what exactly is going to happen. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, not, not to mention the, the concerns around uh, putting doctors across the, across the spectrum under increased uh, pressure and stress during a, a global pandemic. Yes. Um, as I said, you're asking doctors to change and, and doctors' offices the people who do all the work of the billing in doctors' offices, um, you're asking them to change the way they do things for some 900 items. Mm. And and anyone who's interested enough to look up MBS online um, will see just how intricate and detailed these items are. And, and, you know, you could go through line by line looking at the difference between the new items and the old items, and that's... That's a PhD task, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, definitely something that I think we should all be keeping an eye on, on how this, how this rolls out, uh, whether communication changes, whether there's any response to, um, you know, consumer health advocates, uh, to uh, doctors' associations like the Australian Medical Association, the RACGP and others um, who are raising concerns around the time frame of implementation. Right. Um, yeah, but thank you so much, Dr. Leslie Russell, for joining us to talk about this today. You are very welcome. And I would add just one last point, mm-hmm. which is that I think everybody, doctors and patients, need to understand better how things get listed on the MBS and how they get taken off and how they get modified and changed. Because there is a very scientific rigorous process for this happening and we might all feel a bit more comfortable if we understood it more. Absolutely. It's our health. Um, So thank you so much for explaining that to us. And uh, that was Dr. Leslie Russell, who's an associate professor at the Menzies Center for Health Policy, University of Sydney, who joined us to speak about the recently announced changes to the Medicare benefits schedule and their impacts on consumers, doctors and insurers. And I think a really important takeaway from that is because of the implementation, the rush rush time frame, we really don't know exactly how these things are going to play out. um, And not knowing in this case could be quite detrimental to consumers and to doctors as well. Um, so looks like we're coming up to the end of the show on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It always goes so quickly. Before we do a rundown, just want to remind listeners that next week is our Radiothon show. So please, please call in next week, listen live, text and donate, and we'll be talking a lot more about that on the 17th of June. But on today's show, we heard from Behrouz Bouchani um, speaking on the Infrastructural Inequalities, Resistant Media and Abolition abolitionist futures panel then we heard from julia dem discussing an open letters round uh the trips waiver um we spoke with mudit vias about international students experiences during covid19 and finally just just then we spoke to dr leslie russell about the changes to the medicare benefits schedule um and just a reminder if you are going to donate to us uh, 3CR Thursday morning breakfast for the Radiothon 2021 for 3CR. We need to raise $250,000. You can call to donate on 94198377. 
uh, head online to donate to 3cr.org.au. And when you go to donate, uh, make sure to nominate the show that you want to donate to and nominate Thursday Morning Breakfast. And we will catch you next week for our live Radiothon show where we'll be asking you to call in. Um, head to at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram for more updates about how that's going to work. All right. Take care. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.